For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're studying five weeks of what I'm calling the five greatest predictive prophecies in the history of the human race. Daniel is the greatest collection of these. And if you missed last week, you missed a lot. You missed our coverage of this big old statue. We're here in the year, this was the year close to 600 BC last week. We're all the way on the other side of the world in modern day Iraq and Iran. Daniel is a Jewish teen exiled to Babylon, a prisoner of war, and he ends up interpreting a dream for the mighty king Nebuchadnezzar, where God predicts a succession of empires starting with Babylon in their day and leading right down to the end of the world where Jesus Christ will set up the kingdom of God. We saw that the head exactly predicted Babylon and he predicted the fall of Babylon and the rise of the Medo-Persian empire. We saw the fall of the Medo-Persian empire and the rise of the Greeks. We saw the fall of the Greeks and the rise of mighty Rome. And then finally, we saw that Rome would split up into a number of different nations. But as the world approaches the final days, the end of history, the old offshoots of Rome would reunite into a coalition that would be more powerful than any nation in the world. And, you know, we didn't say that necessarily has happened in our day, but we at least could see that it's plausible as we talked about the efforts of the European nations to unite into the European Union Um, offshoots of Rome, and in order to create a common currency, free internal borders, and a common defense. We talked about all of that last week, and Daniel predicted all of this in advance 2,500 years ago. I also said, nothing compares to biblical prophecy, and I said, if you know of anything like this, you've got to let me know, because I'm really interested in that. I haven't been able to find anything in all the years I've been studying this. Well, none of you emailed me last week, so... If you've got something, please don't hold back. I did want to just contrast it with our feeble attempts to predict the future. You look at modern movies, modern attempts to predict the future. Take a movie like Back to the Future from 1985. (laughs) Simply trying to predict 30 years in the future. Daniel's shooting 2,500 years in the future. A mere 30 into the future with all the most brilliant minds of Hollywood, which is brilliant. Here's the clothes they've got us wearing in the year 2015. Looks kind of like 80s clothes with metal on them. (laughs) Uh, Here's the hoverboard. The closest we got to that were these things that would explode (laughs) and were forbidden to be taken on airplanes. It definitely didn't happen by 2015. What about the movie Blade Runner? Anybody see the, the recent Blade Runner 2049? The original Blade Runner was early 80s, and it was events taking place in the year 2019. That's a little over a year away. I wonder how we're doing on human robots that look like this, look exactly and function exactly like humans. How are we doing on flying police cars? Not too well. A lot of times people then will say, well, what about Nostradamus? I hear he predicted 9-11. I hear he predicted a lot of things. Yeah, what about Nostradamus? Let's take a look at what a lot of Nostradamites (laughs) would call the most impressive predictive prophecy of Nostradamus, perhaps. 
His prediction of September 11th, a contemporary event, only recently happened. Nostradamus in the early 1500s AD, here's his quatrain 10-72. Let me just read it. He, he wrote in these four-line little quatrains. In the year 1999, in the seventh month, from the sky will come the great king of terror, bringing back to life the great king of the Mongols, before and after Mars to reign by good fortune. And what Nostradamites would argue is that this accurately predicts the attacks of September 11, 2001. For example, you can read about this on the Nostradamus Society of the United States, NostradamusUSA.com. Here's what they have to say about this quatrain. First of all, the year 1999, they say this is really the key to understanding this. The real clue is that the date 1999 is nothing more than a numeric anagram. If we reverse the order of the ones and the nines, we arrive at the date 9-11-1, which was the date of the 9-11 attacks. Furthermore, from the sky will come the great king of terror, they say, from the sky, suggesting an aerial event, perhaps aircraft, missiles, something else. The great, as in powerful, king of terror, suggesting an unnamed leader of a nation who possesses a powerful military, probably a foe of Europe and the West. Bringing back to life the great king of the Mongols, what does that refer to? Well, bringing back to life, rebirthing the great king of the Mongols. Genghis Khan was the Mongolian king who conquered Asia in the 13th century. Thus, this is an Asian military leader. Hmm. And before and after Mars to reign by good fortune. Well, everybody knows that Mars is the symbolic planet of war in astrology. And to reign by good fortune means war appears to reign fortunate for an unnamed nation or group of nations before and after July of 1999. All right. And so, as they conclude, the tragic events of 9-11 were truly foreshadowed here. It's obvious that Osama bin Laden is the great king of terror who comes from the sky. In summation, this quatrain provided an astonishing preview of September 11th. What do you think? Nostradamus. Let's think about this a little bit more. Well, if you do a little background reading, you'll see a couple of things come to light. Ian Wilson's book, Nostradamus, The Man Behind the Prophecies. Here's what he has to say about this one. He says, first of all, the original edition of Nostradamus does not say that, that from the sky will come the great king of terror. It says from the sky will come a great appeaser king. So we got to amend our text to be what Nostradamus wrote. Also, he says, bring back to life the great king of the Mongols. The great king of the Mongols is the French word angomois. <laughs> what does angomois mean? In Nostradamus' time, it actually referred to one of the territories belonging to the Queen of Navarre, northeast of Bordeaux. So it's not about the great king of the Mongols. It's about one of the territories near France. And that's what the word meant in Nostradamus' day. Also, if you reverse 1999, it doesn't spell out September 11th, 2001. It's, it's either September 99th, 2001, or September 9th of 1991, neither of which were really big days in the history of terror. 
I guess if you reverse the numbers and then change half of them, <laughs> you could sort of get to 9-11-01. Yeah, uh, you know, and if you think about this, a few more features, there's no context. It's not like there's a long passage here about the September 11th attacks. Each quatrain is completely unrelated to the one that comes before it in, in a lot of cases here. Secondly, there's no syntax or grammar. These aren't even really sentences. Before and after Mars to reign by good fortune? I mean, what does that mean? <laughs> also, there's no correlation. What would be nice is if he had, you know, a passage here about the September 11th attacks, and then a passage here about them, and a passage here about them, and that's what we find with biblical prophecy, is you have these visions, these prophecies repeated over and over again, different prophecies fleshing out different versions of it, and then clearly tying into one another like the prophecies we see right here in the book of Daniel. And so, Nostradamus, this is nothing anywhere close to what we're seeing here in biblical prophecy, even the best they have to offer. Yes, this week we're going to see him further refine this scaffolding that he set up for us last week with these five kingdoms. And what we're really going to focus in on are the chest, the belly, and the thighs. That would be the Medo-Persian Empire, and even more than that, the Greek Empire, and that's where most of our time is going to be spent tonight. In the future weeks, we'll jump down into stuff that's still future for us today. But there is relevance for this as well, which I'll explain at the end. All right, Daniel chapter 8. I hope you brought your Bibles. I hope you brought something to write with. Let's start reading. Daniel writes, it was during the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, around 550 B.C., that I, Daniel, saw another vision following the one that had already appeared to me. And so Daniel, last week, he was, a, he was in his mid to late teens. This week, he's 70 years old. This vision that he receives that he's going to narrate for us. So he's an old man by now. In this vision, I was at the fortress of Susa in the province of Elam, standing beside the Ulai River. And so he's transported from his duties in the capital of Babylon. And suddenly, he's hundreds of miles away in the fortress of Susa, which at that time was the capital of the Elamite province, which would become the Persians pretty shortly here. But he's whisked away to Susa. He's standing beside the Ulai River. This was a man-made engineered canal, 900 feet across. Massive. The Ulai River. He says, as I looked up, I saw a ram with two long horns standing beside the river. And so last week there was a vision of a statue. This week it's a vision of a battle. And the first combatant is a ram with two long horns. So there's a ram with long horns. One of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had grown later than the other one. And so, you know, this, this ram maybe back in high school when only one of his horns sprung up, maybe the other rams were making fun of him. But nobody was laughing when Big Lefty grew in, okay? <laughs> and this man ram went on a rampage. <laughs> he began trampling everything and everyone in sight. He butted everything out of his way to the west, to the north, and to the south. Those three directions. No one could stand against him or help his victims. And so as the ram is standing there over his vanquished foes, Daniel looks to the west and he sees a challenger arise. 
This ram, even though he did as he pleased and became very great, suddenly he saw a male goat appear from the west. <laughs> it's a unigoat. <laughs> we'll see it has only one horn. This goat was crossing the land so swiftly that he didn't even touch the ground. Now that's fast. That's like, that's like cartoon fast. <laughs> this goat, which had one very large horn between its eyes, headed toward the two-horned ram that I had seen standing beside the river. He was rushing at him in a rage. Angry goat. And so Daniel's standing there. He sees these two massive animals, the goat rushing at the ram. Who will be victorious? <laughs> The goat charged furiously at the ram, and he struck the ram, breaking off both of his horns. Now the ram was helpless, and the goat knocked him down and trampled him. And no one could rescue the ram from the goat's power. And the goat became very powerful. But at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. And in the large horn's place grew four prominent horns pointing in the four directions of the earth. Well, that's very strange. <laughs> then from one of the prominent horns came a small horn whose power grew very great. So you got this little bloop. <laughs> so we're up to, we're up to Five horns, I guess, four, and then you got like kind of a 2A, 2B horn thing. <laughs> that horn extended toward the south and toward the east and toward the glorious land of Israel. You can see where we've suddenly switched over. We're talking about nations. Well, its power reached to the heavens where it attacked the heavenly army, throwing some of the heavenly beings and some of the stars to the ground and trampling them. It even challenged the commander of heaven's army by canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him and by destroying his temple. The army of heaven was restrained from responding to this rebellion. Very weird. So the daily sacrifice was halted and truth was overthrown. The horn succeeded in everything it did. Then I heard two holy ones talking to each other. Two angels. One of them asked, How long will the events of the vision last? How long will the rebellion that causes desecration stop the daily sacrifices? How long will the temple and heaven's army be trampled on? And then the other one replied, It'll take 2,300 evenings and mornings. And then the temple will be made right again. And so there's the vision. What do we do with it? Well, like I said last week, with biblical prophecy, we don't need to speculate and take the numbers and change some of them and flip them around and read the newspaper and trying to read events into it. If you're confused about what the prophecy means, usually a pretty good bet is you just keep reading. And a lot of times things become a lot more clear. And that's what happens here. Daniel says, I was trying to understand the meaning of this vision and then someone who looked like a man stood in front of me. And I heard a human voice calling out from the river, Gabriel, 
Tell this man the meaning of his vision. The angel Gabriel, one of two angels named in scripture. As Gabriel approached the place where I was standing, I became so terrified that I fell with my face to the ground. Son of man, Gabriel said, you must understand that the events you've seen in your vision, they relate to the time of the end. <clears throat> Which didn't help at all, because it says, while he was speaking, I fainted. <laughs> and I lay there with my face to the ground. It's a little much for old Daniel. I mean, he's 70. This is a lot more excitement than a normal one of his days. But Gabriel roused me with a touch, and he helped me to my feet. And then he said, I'm here to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. What you've seen pertains to the very end of time. So there's something relevant for the end times here that we're going to see. He says, the two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. Remember last week, the, the silver chest? That was the Media Persian Empire, we said. Here he explicitly names this empire. And that's a great description of the Medo-Persian Empire. This was one empire really with two phases. First the Medes and then the Persians. It was united under a very important biblical figure. Cyrus the Great comes up in the Bible. He's predicted by name by the prophet Isaiah almost 200 years in advance. Cyrus the Great became the king of this little province, the little Elamite province down there, centered on Susa, where Daniel's at, in 559 BC. Cyrus was part Persian, part Mede. His dad was a Persian, but his mom's dad was the last king of the Medes. And in fact, Cyrus and his grandpa battled one another for the empire. They battled one another from 553 to 550 BC. And here's a, here's a little animated gif that sort of shows the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire. You see that in its initial forms, it was there as far back as 3000 BC. The Elamite period, there's little, little kingdoms that are eventually going to get spliced into this thing. There's the Median Empire's first beginnings in 678 BC. By 600 BC, they had expanded, even though they were under Babylon. Then you see the big lefty coming up here, the Persian Empire. He starts to battle with his grandpa. He starts to defeat grandpa. And then boom, he takes over the whole thing. They push westward, budding north and west into Turkey. And then finally south, boom, taking over the Babylonian Empire. And at his height, Cyrus, in a period of only about a decade, he took over this much land from Turkey and Israel in the west all the way east as far as the border of India. Notice how each of these empires, they're sort of subsuming the one that came before and expanding and adding to it. This is what, this is what Daniel predicted with that, that two-horned ram, the first horn and then the other, the bigger horn coming up. This dominated for 200 years from around 540 to the 330s BC. Uh, they actually they tried to bust westward into Greece for about 50 years. Uh, if you've seen the movie 300, the Persians, these are the guys that fought at the Battle of Thermopylae and um, they lost. 
And finally, after 50 years of trying to take down the Greeks, they gave up and they retreated and they, they signed a treaty, which gave Greece about 100 years to get more and more powerful before the, 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 the shaggy goat comes onto the scene. He says the shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes represents the first king of the Greek empire. And this is none other than Alexander the Great. Alexander, he was the son of Philip, King Philip of Macedon. Philip, he ruled Macedon for maybe 20 years. And he ended up uniting the different tribes of Greece under one federation. So he basically united, united, the, united Greece all under one federation. Part of that, he was so successful because he basically invented the phalanx, which is what made the Greek army essentially unstoppable. He also hired a guy named Aristotle to tutor his brilliant son, Alexander. And so Alexander grew up under a military genius and one of the great philosophical and intellectual geniuses of all time. He left his studies at 16 to go start leading the army into battle. He became king at age 20. How would you like to be the king of Greece at 20 years old? Some, a lot of us here are 20. Imagine being thrust into that role. But for Alexander, it was no problem. His dad had been assassinated, so he spent the first two years of his reign killing all of his rivals. And then in 334 BC, this is what his kingdom looked like. All right, that's Greece. He attacks Persia, and over the next 10 years, here's what his kingdom came to look like. He took everything Persia had, plus he had all of Greece, plus he took Egypt, and he took further up and north over there on the east side of the kingdom. Absolutely incredible. 1.5 million square miles. He conquered all this in a decade with an ancient army. This is what he did. This guy was, I mean, they call him Alexander the Great for a reason. And what's interesting here, you know, Daniel's predicting all of this in advance. The horn flying across without even touching the ground. The speed with which Alexander came from the west to conquer the media Persian empire. You can see why skeptical scholars say there's no way these were written in advance. Because they're too accurate. But we argued a couple weeks ago why these were written in the 500s B.C. Daniel. Well, one interesting side story I want to tell here on his way through Israel conquering Jerusalem, when he rolled up to Jerusalem with his army, Josephus tells a very interesting story about his Alexander's conquest in his antiquities. Check this out. You guys are getting some history tonight. Everybody's terrified because Alexander the Great is marching on Jerusalem. The high priest, Josephus says, a guy named Jadus has a dream. And in that dream, God says, just walk out unarmed, you and the other priests, and meet Alexander, and I'm going to keep you guys safe. And so they walk out unarmed, they walk up to Alexander, and Alexander in front of all of his army and all of his generals, he rides up to the high priest, and he walks up and he salutes the high priest. And Josephus says at this point, the kings of Syria and the rest were surprised at what Alexander had done, and they supposed him disordered in his mind. <laughs> they said, what are you doing? And Alexander says, he turns and says, back when I was in Greece, I had a dream, and in my dream, I saw this guy right here. And in my dream, this guy told me, 
I'm going to conquer all of Persia. And so Josephus says the priests at that point, they welcomed him warmly. They brought him into the city. And what did they show him? The book of Daniel. The book of Daniel was showed him wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians. So Alexander supposed that he was the person intended. And he was then glad. <laughs> and so he was very kind to the Jews, in part because of this experience right here. One point, though, here I'm taking away from this is that Alexander's success was no accident. God saw this coming, and God is going to use Alexander's conquests. He's going to spread the Greek language all over that entire area. God knew that one day he's going to write the New Testament in Greek, not Hebrew. That eventually the Septuagint would also be translated into Greek. The Old Testament would be translated into Greek. This would also set the stage for the famous Pax Romana, which would allow, which was the peace across the borders of the entire Roman Empire, which allowed for free travel, which allowed for good and safe roads. And what that would provide for is the full, in the fullness of time, at just the right moment, Jesus Christ would be born into this Greek-speaking world under the Pax Romana. And it would be just the right time for the good news about the forgiveness that he offers to spread all over that entire part of the world. Well, Alexander died suddenly at age 32. He conquers the, the known world in 10 or 11 years. You know, what is there left to do? Well, remember, Daniel said at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. And we know from history that he contracted an illness at the palace of Susa, the very place Daniel's vision is taking place. That's pretty interesting. He contracted an illness there and he died suddenly, which just sent the entire Greek empire into disarray. People, people could not believe this. In fact, when the news came back to Greece, they didn't believe it at first. They had no plans for his successor. His oldest son was still in the womb at this point. So he has no valid prince to take over. On his deathbed, they asked him, Alexander, I, you're dying. To whom do you give your kingdom? And he replied, toi kratis toi, which means give it to the strongest. So a lot of his generals were thinking, he must be talking about me. <laughs> And what ensued was a 20-year power struggle. He spent 10 years conquering the world, and then after he died, his, his family and his generals spent 20 years fighting over what he, had, what he had conquered until finally around 301 BC, things stabilized somewhat. And this is what Daniel predicted. He doesn't just predict the one horn, and then he says the four prominent horns that replaced the one large horn, show that the Greek empire will break into four kingdoms, but none as great as the first. And we can read our history and we can find that's exactly what happened. Greece broke into four kingdoms. You can see the green, the big green one on the right there. That's the Seleucid empire. That's going to be important later. Egypt is the red one at the bottom. And then you have the Macedonians and then you have sort of the rest of Greece and Western Asia as the other two. Those don't really feature in our story tonight. And so it splits into four kingdoms, the four horns, just like Daniel said. And then things stay that way for about 125 years. And then Daniel says, at the height of their rule, when their sin is at its height, 
at the end of their rule, when the sin is at its height, a fierce king, a master of intrigue, will rise to power. Remember the little horn that grew out of one of the, the horns? This is the guy he's talking about here. This is a guy, we definitely know who this guy was from history, King Antiochus IV. This guy called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which, is, which, which means Antiochus, God has appeared. <laughs> what other people called him was Antiochus. Antiochus Epimedes, which meant Antiochus the madman. <laughs> he rose from the Seleucid Empire. This is the one horn, the little, the small horn that came out of one of the offshoots of the Greek Empire. Daniel predicted him too. This guy was bad news. This guy is one of the most notorious enemies of the Jews in all of the history of the Jews. And that's really saying something because the Jews have been persecuted a lot down through their history. Antiochus Epiphanes will become very strong, but not by his own power. What does that mean? Um, it could refer to the fact that maybe how he usurped others. The way he became king is one of the military guys killed his brother. And Antiochus kind of stepped into the void and seized power, killed his nephew to make sure he would stay king. So it could be that. It, it could also be something more sinister. It could be a reference to... His rise to power was not just mere human ingenuity, but there was an evil power behind him, bringing him to the fore, and also is what instigated this persecution of the Jews that began under Antiochus Epiphanes shortly after he took office in 175 BC. He'll cause a shocking amount of destruction. He'll succeed in everything he does. He'll destroy powerful leaders. He'll devastate the holy people. He'll be a master of deception. He'll become arrogant. He'll destroy many without warning. Yes, these lies, these surprise attacks, a devastation of the holy people, his persecution of Israel, this was the most intense persecution they'd ever seen up until that point. One of the most intense ones they would ever see for all their history as well. Antiochus Epiphanes, we should talk about him some. He launched the greatest persecution the Jews had ever experienced. He wanted to make the Jews into Greeks. He departed from the strategy of earlier kings. You know, the, the Greek kings, they would, they would conquer and they would let the people do their own thing. As long as they paid their taxes. Antiochus, he said, no, you will become Greek. I will force you and I want your worship as well. Because I'm Antiochus Epiphanes. He started by exiling and then killing the high priest, Ananias III. And then he sold the high priest job to Ananias' Greek-loving brother, Jason. And Jason, he had a Greek name. He instituted all kinds of Greek reforms. What did he have? What was he doing to the Jews? Well, Gundry says he built a gymnasium and a racetrack there. The, Jew, the Greeks loved their games. And there, to the outrage of strict Jews, Jewish lads exercised in the Greek fashion, buck naked. <laughs> the Greeks thought the human body was just beautiful and that you shouldn't cover it up. The only clothing they wore was olive oil when they would compete in these ancient Olympic games. That's why they, that's why they were appalled at circumcision, because how could you mutilate the human body like this? 
Track races opened with, in, with prayers to pagan deities. Even Jewish priests attended these events. And so some of the, some of the Jews, they just went right on in to, to gr- Greek culture. And they were like, yeah, bring it on. Other Jews were like, no, we cannot abandon our roots. And so there was tension there. This was called Hellenization, Greekifying. It included attendance at Greek theaters, the adoption of Greek dress, and then surgery to disguise circumcision when exercising in the nude. Yeah, I don't know how this works. <laughs> I've never really looked into it. I don't want to know. But these, these, these Jewish boys, they would get circumcised when they were babies, and they would grow up, and they loved the Greek culture, and so they would undergo some sort of a, a, an operation to get uncircumcised. Like in the New Testament where Paul says, if you're circumcised, you don't need to become uncircumcised. He may be speaking a little more literally than we had thought. (laughs) They would exchange their Hebrew names for Greek names, like the name Jason, for example, of the high priest. That's a Greek name. Well, Epiphanes, he tried to conquer Egypt in 169 BC. And then something very unexpected happened. Something that really made him angry. He marched down into Egypt to take over the country. He thought he had it in the bag. And then all of a sudden, who sails in but the Romans? In the second century BC Greek historian, he tells the story of what happened when... Antiochus met the rising might of Rome. When Antiochus had advanced to attack Egypt, he was met by the Roman commander, Gaius Papilius Laenus. Upon the king greeting him from some distance, he waved, he held out his right hand to the Roman general. And the Roman general just looked at him. And instead of shaking his hand, he just handed him the tablets, which contained the decree of the Senate. And he said, Antiochus, you should read that first. What these tablets said was, if you attack Egypt, you consider yourself at war with Rome because we get all our food from Egypt and we're not going to have you destroying our kitchen. (laughs) Antiochus was shocked. It says, the king, after reading this dispatch, said he wanted to consult with his friends on the situation. But then... Papilius did a thing which was looked upon as exceedingly overbearing and insolent, very rude. Before Antiochus could go anywhere, it says that the Roman general happened to have a vine stick in his hand, and so he just walked around Antiochus, and he drew a line in the sand, a circle to be exact, which is where our saying comes from, drawing a line in the sand. He drew a circle around this great king, with everyone watching, And he said, you need to give your answer to the letter before you step out of that circumference. (laughs) Polybius says, the king was taken aback by this haughty proceeding. And after a brief interval of embarrassed silence, he replied, he would do whatever the Romans demanded. He knew better than to mess with Rome at this point. But he was mad. He had to retreat. 
He had heard of a revolt in Israel at the time, and he vented his fury on the Jews. Second Maccabees says, raging like a wild animal, he set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost. 40,000 met a violent death and the same number sold into slavery. This great tribulation that he launched, he took more and more drastic measures to convert the Jews. He made it a capital crime to practice Judaism, according to 1 Maccabees 1. He made the Jewish people sacrifice pigs and worship idols. Greek soldiers collected and burned the scriptures and killed anyone who possessed a Bible. He killed Jewish mothers who circumcised their boys and, quote, hung the infants from their mother's necks. That's how they would kill these babies by hanging. Second Maccabees 7 tells the story of a mother of seven who refused to eat pig meat. What did he do to her? He had the leader of the brothers tortured. They cut out his tongue, cut off his hands, cut off his feet, scalped him, and threw him alive onto a heated frying pan while everyone had to watch. They wouldn't recant. He did the same thing to each of the seven brothers and then to the mother. Savage! And then in December of 167 BC, Antiochus did the unthinkable. He entered the temple, he set up a statue of Zeus, and he offered a pig on the altar in Jerusalem. He desecrated the temple. This was too much. This pushed the Jews to the breaking point in 167 BC. And there was a guy named Mattathias in a little town about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And a Greek official had called a public gathering and he was trying to force Matthias, Mattathias to sacrifice to the Greek gods. And he refused. And another Jew stepped up and said, I'll, I'll make the sacrifice to these Greek gods. And at that point, Mattathias lost it. First Maccabee says, when he saw it, he burned with zeal and his heart was stirred and he ran and he killed the Jew who stepped forward right there on the altar. Then he killed the king's officer who was forcing him to sacrifice and then he tore down the altar and then he cried out to the town with a loud voice saying, let everyone who's zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me. And then he and his sons fled to the hills and left all that they had in the town. And he led a revolt, Braveheart style, Three years of guerrilla warfare. This is what launched the Maccabean Wars, the Maccabean Revolt. And what's crazy is three years of this little band of Jews attacking the most powerful nation in that area, they won their freedom after three years of fighting. Antiochus will take his stand against the Prince of Princes, probably a reference to him defiling the temple of God. But he will be broken, though not by human power. Yeah, he's not going to die on the battlefield. He's going to die of disease suddenly in 164 BC. And then the angel concludes by saying, this vision about the 2300 evenings and mornings is true. Now, what are these 2300 evenings and mornings? We got to figure this out. You know, do we need to switch it around, change some numbers, try to make it come out to what we want it to be? What is it? Does it symbolize something? The number of completion? 
No, it's, it means 2,300 evenings and mornings. The question is, how do you take the evenings and mornings? You know, this refers to a time when there's a rebellion that causes desecration, stopping the daily sacrifices. Yeah, they would, they would do these sacrifices every day in the temple. Antiochus put an end to those for three years. The temple is trampled upon. And they said, after 2,300 evenings and mornings, the temple will be made right again. What does it mean? Well, we can be pretty certain we know the end point for this period of time. When the temple is made right again refers to one of the most famous events in the history of Judaism. December of 164 BC. And I don't know if anybody here knows what this is, but this date was the date when Antiochus had died shortly before this in 164. They retook Jerusalem. They rededicated the temple. They built a new altar. They built all new stuff because the old stuff had been defiled. And this is when they began offering sacrifices again, exactly three years after he had defiled it. And to commemorate this occasion, they instituted an eight-day festival to be held every December, which is the festival of Hanukkah. December of 164 BC was the very first Hanukkah. Yeah, it's not just about getting presents for eight days. It's the eight days of festivals they commemorated when they rededicated the temple. So what is the starting point of these 2300 evenings and mornings? Well, if that's a reference to 2300 days, then the starting point is mid-170 BC. Well, what happened in 170 BC that could qualify? The best guess... Guys like Walverd think this is the assassination of that high priest, Onias III. That's when he was assassinated. And so you'd have about six and a half years from that until the rededication of the temple. On the other hand, if you take 2300 evenings and mornings to refer to the evening and the morning sacrifice that they would do, the sacrifices Antiochus stopped, well, then instead of 2,300 day, days, it'd be 1,150 days, which is about 3.15 years, which would put our starting point around November of 167 BC. What would this correspond with? Well, this was only a little over a month before Antiochus defiled the temple. This may have been the date when he put the sacrifices to a stop. You've got to imagine if he's going to set up a, 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 an altar to Zeus, you know, he's going to have to have one made or ordered. That takes time. These things don't just grow on trees. <laughs> Statues of Zeus. You can't just get it two-day overnight shipping. <laughs> I sort of lean toward the uh, second of these options, the November 167 BC date. Could be the other one as well. But the point is it refers to a specific time period. And there are two important events on the beginning of this time period. And we know the definite end period of this. And again, Daniel predicted this stuff in advance. But he says, none of these things will happen for a long time, so keep the vision a secret or seal it up. Meaning either don't tell anybody, and that's maybe why he wrote this chapter in Hebrew, or he just means put your official seal on it so people will know that this is authentic prophecy and so they can read it. And then he says, I was overcome and lay sick for several days, and afterward I got up and performed my duties for the king. But I was greatly troubled by the vision, and I could not understand it. And so Daniel's wiped out and confused by this vision. In fact, for certain parts of Daniel, we're in a better position to understand them than even Daniel was, because we have the advantage of hindsight. We have the advantage of history to look back on it. 
And so what did Daniel predict in 550 BC? Let's just try to summarize this. He predicted that Israel will be regathered into a nation with a rebuilt functioning temple. You know, they, they weren't in Israel at the time. They didn't have a temple. His predictions imply there will be a temple again someday and that it will be functioning, functioning enough to be defiled by this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, the small horn. So that's one prediction. He predicted the Medo-Persian Empire will rise to power with the Medes coming first. He predicted that Greece will rise to power with one single great amazing king who will then be broken off and the kingdom will split into four parts just like happened to the Greeks. He predicted that an evil ruler will rise out of one of those four Greek kingdom offshoots. That's exactly what happened with Antiochus. He said that Antiochus will instigate the greatest persecution God's people had ever seen up until that point. That's exactly what happened. He said that Antiochus will commit some sort of abomination in the temple, which will spark a war lasting about three years. And at the end of that war, that evil ruler will be broken, though not by human power. This is what he predicts. This is biblical prophecy. This is not some obscure thing. This has context. It has correlation with the earlier prophecy that we studied last week. It's extensive. He clearly defines certain parts of it. He leaves some of it in symbols. But so much is there to verify that this is from God. These are amazing predictions. For all these events were still future to Daniel. But these also pertain to the time of the end, like the angel said. And the way they do that is because these are types of what will happen in the end times. And what God will do sometimes is he will bring about an institution or an event or a person along. And that person is sort of like similar to something that's going to happen in the future. It's one of the ways that God predicts the future, through types. And what he, what he says is that in the end times, still future to us, Israel will be regathered again with a functioning temple. That an evil ruler will rise again that scripture calls the Antichrist, who's going to be kind of like Antiochus. He will launch a great tribulation kind of against the people of God, kind of like the one Antiochus launched. He will defile the temple in a way sort of like what Antiochus did, but still different. He will be broken in the end, and not by human hands, but by God himself. This is a far cry from Nostradamus, okay? This is so different. Biblical prophecy. God revealed this so that you will know that it's from him because he's trying to tell you what is coming in the future. It's a message of warning, but even more, it's a message of grace. God is offering grace. He's offering forgiveness. And because we've seen these events fulfilled in the past, we know these other things will happen in the future, and we also know what to do to be ready. So one question for you is, will you receive his grace that he's offering you? Will you be ready when the end comes? And two, will you come back and see where all these types point for the future? Because that's what we're going to talk about next week. All right, let's pray. Yes, Lord, you say you're the God that declares the end from the beginning. And that you're the only one that can do that, truly. Thank, I'm thankful that you know where all this is headed. That you laid plans 
to rescue us, that you're offering that rescue to us here tonight. And I pray that you'd help us to understand these prophecies, Lord. I pray that these would not just go in one ear and out the other, but that these would stick, that we would do some more thinking about these, and that our faith would be strengthened, and that some of us will come, in, come, come to faith for the first time. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.